I hope I shall always possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. The words of President George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the most recent polling and what that tells us about the coming election. We look at the challenges facing the Republic this week, and in our hot take segment, we'll look at last night's town halls, as well as the Senate debates, and wrap up with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app, Patrick. Time to talk about some polling. Um, I'm going to start with this question for you. You know, we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot on the show in the past about national polls versus battleground polls. Uh, The national polls are pretty wide. I mean, we're looking at Biden with a double digit lead pretty much across the board. But when I look at some of the battleground states, I get a little uh, it's a little less clear to me. What what are your what are your thoughts right now on the national polls versus the battleground states? Ian, I think you're right to be scratching your head a little bit about that, because let's say we didn't have any national polls at all, and all we had are state polls. So what we would do is we'd cobble together the state polls and kind of aggregate them up to come up with a national number. And if we did that, Joe Biden would probably be leading by somewhere between seven and eight points versus the 10 and a half points on average that he's leading in the actual national polls. So there's a suggestion there that uh, that the national polls might be overstating Joe Biden's position vis-a-vis not only the national vote, but uh, most importantly, the, the electoral college. Mm-hmm. And, and as you know, we get to a certain point where if Trump gets himself within a normal polling error in these key states and he's there with some of them, then, you know, all bets are off on who's ahead and who's behind. So and and the other thing that we're seeing is as a pollster, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it from some of my colleagues as well, is that in these last uh, weeks before the election, we're running up against what we normally run up against, you know, particularly in states like uh, Iowa, smaller states where there's been a lot of polling done. So basically everybody's been called because they're competitive and they're small. But uh, problems with, you know, getting people to participate because they're they're contacted out, not just from polls, but they've been co- they've been called multiple times by the campaigns and themselves. And so it becomes harder and harder to to reach those voters. And so we have to be even more careful that we're getting the right mix of voters. And I think that's why you're seeing some divergence in uh, the state polls in particular, that it, rather than kind of clustering around a central average, there are kind of still a wide range of possibilities from good polls that give you an average if you're average amount. But it's I, I always tell you, look at the range of good polls. Don't look at a, a single average. Look at the range. If there's a wide range, that means there's a certain level of uncertainty. And I think we're there right now, even though the average is giving Joe Biden the lead in these key states. The range there suggests that that there are things that pollsters are ca- capturing differently depending on their methods and that raises a certain level of uncertainty so yes be be a little concerned about that 
Michigan, Michigan right now, um, we've been seeing polls that are five to seven points pretty consistently, occasionally topping up at eight points, nine. Trafalgar Group, and you're going to tell us if there's some bias here, and I, I had heard from somebody pretty smart said that he, there was bias there, just came out with a poll in the last three hours that has Trump up a point in Michigan. Is that a surprise to you or is that just, you know, not from, not from Trafalgar. Trafalgar, there is a bias there and there, there's a consistent historical bias going back past this election prior to this election. So, um, yes. So you take that with a, with a huge grain of salt there, but by the same token, you should take the, uh, uh forget, uh, the Quinnipiac poll that had, uh, Joe Biden up by, I think seven or eight points in Florida, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past week, uh, f- uh, and not because the um, Trafalgar is a Republican firm. I mean, they, they have Republican clients, so that's there and, and they are really off on, on one area. But the fact that you're getting these wide swings, um, even if you discount, uh, Trafalgar, you're getting these wide v- range is, is problematic in terms of kind of figuring out where we really do stand right now in these key races. Now you, you spent the last week or two weeks, I guess, polling Arizona. So I have two questions for you. One, why did you pick Arizona? And then two, what did you find? Yeah, I had made a decision, um, about which States I was going to look at uh, early in the campaign. Uh, and I wanted to pick a range of states that we were going to poll poll more than once, so we could see if there was any shifts. And those states would be states that would indicate a range of different dynamics that were happening in the electorate. One of the lessons that we learned in 2018 was that blue wave that happened in 2018 wasn't a national blue wave; it was uh, a different blue wave in each region. So the the blue wave in the southwest was different than the blue wave in the Midwest, which was different than the blue wave in the Northeast. Uh, it, but you know they all ended up putting uh, Democrats in the House, but for different reasons. So Arizona is one of those states that we were looking at because of the demographic shift in Arizona that has been happening, uh, and that's why I picked it as uh, the growth of the Latino vote there. Uh, there is a growing number of young voters. This is a state that has been relatively older in past elections, um, because it was a retirement state, but there's right. a lot of people vote. from Chicago moved to Arizona, right. it's sort of like right. New York to Florida pipeline. Right. But over the past few years, there've been a growth in younger voters there as well. So that's, that demographic shift was, was indicative. So, you know, that was important to look at. And so what we're seeing in Arizona, for example, is that Latino vote is, is fairly strong for Joe Biden. It was one of the areas that Joe Biden was considered to be weaker in compared to Hillary Clinton. Uh, right now, we're not seeing that particularly in Arizona. Uh, and at the interesting phenomenon that we're seeing nationwide is that Joe Biden is leading among older voters. And so in Arizona, that means something, even with a growth of younger voters, older voters are important. Uh, in Arizona, there's still a big chunk of that electorate. So that was a reason why we, we picked that. And, and we saw Joe Biden ahead uh, in that race, picking up a few points from where we polled a month ago. And uh, importantly, in terms of the control of the Senate, Mark Kelly seems to be pulling out fairly well and still, you know, not a dead certainty by any stretch of the imagination, but Mark Kelly, the the Democrat who's running against uh, Martha McSally, who was appointed to that seat after John McCain died, um, who 
lost a Senate election two years ago, by the way, and she might end up being the first person to lose to 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 be responsible for two Senate seats flipping in the same state <laughs> within Sorry. two years. Sorry. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, that's good. That's going to be um, her dubious uh, honor in history uh, if this comes out the way that the polls are looking right now. So Arizona is going to be interesting because that's kind of the, the wave. So, you know, if Arizona flips, then your expectation is that Texas is not far behind. Uh, we're I not mean, is Texas yeah. in play. I mean, it, 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 you know, you see the, the 97% voter registration in one of the, in one of the largest counties, which is absurd. I don't understand it. Uh, not even remotely, but if you look at what Beto had done in, uh, in 18, almost taking out Ted Cruz and had, as we discussed, had he had done a better job in that debate, might have actually done the deed. You know, is there a chance that Joe Biden wins Texas? I mean, because if he wins Texas, it's it's over no matter what. There's no way. Right. There's no path uh, right. for President Trump. But is it is it, is it really that close? I mean, it, with a Hispanic vote, there was some talk that the in that Trump is getting somewhere close to forty percent. Uh, it it doesn't seem like Texas is gettable if those are the numbers. Yeah, I think we talked about this last week. One of the problems in Texas is that uh, there's only one um, a polling location per county for early voting. And, right, but that's just and for that, dropping that, that, off your ballots. That's just for dropping right, off. But the you still, yeah, yeah. can still mail them in. Yeah. So, but that that could, but it still could have an impact, right? And there are other rules in Texas that, you know, mm -hmm. Texas is one of those states where the governor and the, legis the Republican legislature have a lot of sway over, yeah. you know, interfering in the electoral process. Georgia is another one. Um, some other states that we're looking at that are close, like North Carolina, that the whole electoral process is a little bit more up and up. Uh, so the, the thing with Texas is, uh, if I was to take a guess, uh, is that Joe Biden probably won't win it this time around, although he could. This is why it's possible. But he's pouring a lot of money in there. Six million dollars. Right, right. So he's pouring a lot of money because he's got a lot of money. He's he raised yeah, he a sure boatload, I mean, boatload of money. Um, Which is one thing, if you think about it, I just want to pull back to when we were talking about Bloomberg, right? And the idea that I, that I was excited about Bloomberg because all of a sudden, um, Bloomberg, if he has, uh, if he had the money, right? That was my idea, that he could overwhelm Trump with money. Well, now Biden is overwhelming Trump with money. And Trump, I mean, we were talking about uh, Wisconsin. I was just reading something about how the president is pulling all of his money out of the upper Midwest or leaving $130,000 in there because that way he could say that he's not pulling out, out, out from those areas. But the money difference in all of these races is just enormous. Sorry to pull yeah. us off topic, but- no, he no, he does it, have the six million to do it easily. It's yeah, it's that's an interesting question. The whole money question, because, you know, the, the backstory behind that is that uh, his former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, who got fired and got into trouble since then um, and now is under investigation for embezzling money from the from the campaign, uh, made all these commitments to these, these advertising commitments based on a prediction of how much money that the Trump campaign was going to raise in the fall. And that never came through. That's why we're seeing all these uh, news stories about Trump pulling out uh, their advertising commitments in these key states. <laughs> it's because they didn't raise the money that they thought they were going to raise. But in Texas, it's really uh, interesting that you know Joe Biden's going in there because there is the possibility he can win. And even if he doesn't win, and this is one thing I just want to mention, there are other things on the ballot that are important. And 
in my book, the most important non-federal election that's occurring this year is for control of the Texas state legislature. Mm-hmm. Census. Because of the census, because of redistricting. Um, the, the, the Texas had a huge gerrymander. Um, if, in fact, if you remember the story back from 2001 uh, and 2002 when they were doing the redistricting there, that Democratic legislators actually went to Oklahoma so that they couldn't, couldn't send marshals to pull them back into the state house so that they wouldn't have a quorum in the state house to pass a gerrymandered map. In the end, they were pulled back in. But I mean, that's how bad the gerrymander is in Texas. And they're very close to being able to, the Democrats to being able to take over the legislature and thus control redistricting for the next 10 years. And that's a huge, well, uh, that actually huge, leads that'd be, me. A, that'd be a huge, huge uh, gain for Democrats All nationwide, around. nationwide, right. so, because of so how many get, uh, congressional seats they have in Texas. Before we get to the 538 forecast, I have in here this idea of a chance of a blowout, right? We've talked about this many times, this idea that President Trump, because of his divisiveness, it seems, c- could conceivably cause a blue wave. Also, he could win. Okay, so there's no, but let's just say that the polls are true and and let's say Biden does just sweep through with seniors and with, uh, you know, suburban women, suburban men uh, and, and does sweep through. If that if this blowout happens, what's going to happen is legislatures all over the country are then going to rewrite maps all over the country, which is not just going to affect what happens in 2021, but everything that happens between 2020 and 2030. What do you think the chances are of that kind of you know, blue tsunami happening at this point. Yeah, so, so I said last week, you know, uh, up until a few weeks ago, my thinking was we had anything from a, a narrow Trump squeaker to Joe Biden winning by about, you know, five points or so and picking up maybe 300 electoral college votes. Right, and um, I'm just and wondering how you are this week. So I'm still, the, I think that the squeaker, the Trump squeaker outcome is still about where it was in terms of probability. But as I mentioned last week, I think now a blowout is also on the cards so it's as, as something that's possible to happen on uh, Biden's side. Um, and if that happens, yes, then there, the dominoes fall. Um, they they fall Thomas not only fall. for the for the for the Senate, but but for these state legislators and legislatures in key states where it's close enough, like Texas, where the Democrats could pick up uh, those legislatures. So the chance is there. Um, but again, as I as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're seeing some uh, the polling ranges stay really wide, which suggests that there's still a lot of uncertainty out there about exactly what's going to happen. Uh, maybe we'll get a little bit more certainty because one of the things that we're seeing, like, for example, I'm polling Iowa right now. One of the things we're seeing is nearly half of voters are telling us at this point that they've already voted. So that's kind of locked in. Um, so we might get a better kinda. sense because of that. <laughs> it's kind of locked in. Yeah. Um, yeah. As long as we're measuring it correctly, we, we get we have a good sense of that. So I think that's a, a chance for a blot. Now, um, is it. Uh, a huge chance? I don't know. Does just does Joe Biden have an 87% chance of winning like the 538 well, forecast gives him? I don't know. So, I mean, you know, you have concerns about that. I have forecast, great concerns right? about that. So the, the 538, who considers you the number one pollster in America, so he's pretty smart, right? Yeah. yeah. So he, he uh, 538 forecast right now has the chance of winning – for Joe Biden at 87% and Donald Trump at 13% with electoral votes going Biden 346 
and Trump 192. Um, that is, uh, that seems surprising to me. That seems really high. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we saw the inside straight or the quote inside straight that was needed in 2016. It's surprising that 538 has it at this. Is it, are they coming to this based purely on the polling numbers? Is that, is that where they're coming from with this? Polling is a large part of it, but no, it's not the only part of it. So, um, and you can go, Nate Silver actually did a very good job of explaining his model. And they've done a lot of models over the years for different races, not just presidential, but uh, Senate and House races, governor's races as well. But they've also done models for uh, outcomes of sporting events, because you know, if you remember, that's where Nate right, Silver that's got where started. Right, that's where he started, ESPN. Right, as a baseball um, handicapper. <laughs> And what he claims is, as he looks back over time, that in models that he's created, uh, in the whatever hundreds of models that he's created, that if the model says something is going to happen 70% of the time, if he takes all those chances where the model was a 70% model, then the predicted outcome did happen 70% of the time, and the not predicted outcome happened 30% of the time, which means that the model was, in fact, correct. Um, so... So remember last time's model, uh, the Trump-Clinton model, uh, Trump had about a 30% chance of winning at the end, and he ended up winning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what Nate Silverwood said is that that if we had, uh, you know, 100 presidential elections just like that, where somebody had a 70% chance of winning and somebody had a 30% chance of winning, then you would expect 30 out of those 100 times the underdog would have won. And so what he's now saying is using that same model is that saying if if – Donald Trump wins this time, it'll be the 13 times out of 100 times if we had 100 different elections that looked exactly like this, that the underdog would win. That's still a decent number of times. But it's um, not great. Then, but it's, it's not, not great. Gr- it's not great. But still, you know, think of it this way. If you um, – I don't know whether I used this analogy last week, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself here. But if you walked into a, a room and there were 10 doors there. And you knew that behind each of those 10 doors, there was $100,000. But one of those doors, if you opened it up, there would be noxious gas that came out and would immediately kill you. Would the $100,000 be worth the risk to you? No. No thanks. No. Well, that's that's what we're talking about right here with Donald Trump's chances. Okay. Well, I, right. I mean, so, I, I so we, we, do, we tend to, we tend not to understand probabilities all that much, but th- that's still 13% is still a decent probability. I, I think it's a, a very strong, I think, I, I think it's a little higher though. You know, one thing to be mindful of is that, uh, last time again, president Trump was up against Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden is cared for and liked a whole lot more than Hillary Clinton. And also the difference is that four years ago, President Trump hadn't shown what he does in office. And now, four years later, he has shown what he's done in office. So I'm going to ask you this, and and this goes back to the blowout question. If there is a blowout, and we're going to talk about Ben Sass a little bit later in the show, because there's a lot to say about Ben Sass this week, my old pal, Ben Sass. But he was talking about the blue tsunami and he was saying that he could really this could really handicap the Republican Party for decades. Is there some truth to that? Do you think that, you know, when we went back and looked at whether President Trump could really hurt the brand of the Republican Party, are you seeing that in your polling? Um, well, the, this is the thing. 
Donald Trump has already handicapped the Republican Party if you're thinking of the Republican Party as it existed uh, 10 years ago or, or longer ago, meaning that the brand is now the Trump brand. He has subsumed the Republican Party into being the Trump brand. So if we think of the Republican Party as the party that existed a, a decade or a generation ago as a counterpoint to the Democratic Party um, with a, a somewhat larger tent uh, and uh, more a wider range of views, you know, on the right, on the on the right, but a wider range of views within being on the right, then that's already happened. Uh, so if they lose by a blowout, yes, they're handicapped quite a lot because they're just a, a clearly a minority party. But even if they win, in a sense, they're handicapped in the sense that they have to become fully the Trump party at that point. Uh, and whatever Which they the already old, are. Right. They, they are the Trump are. party. But I think, I, I think at that point you have to, you would have to admit that there's no way that you're going to claw back. But this is what I hear, and I've talked about this before. I hear from my moderate Republican friends here on the East Coast uh, that, you know, secretly they hope for Trump to lose because they feel that they can get their party back. And I think if Trump won, that kind of would put the stamp on it, even for those folks, that now those days are gone. So, you know, what are you going to do next? Um, so, so I think that's, that's Larry where Hogan's right going to write in Ronald Reagan, apparently. Yeah, yep. that's um, what he said he did. That's what he said he did. God bless him. So let's move on to uh, the, our next topic, which is how the Republic is faring this week. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to bring up a couple of topics about some things that came out this week. One of them was in early February when the pandemic was not yet public in the, in the extent of how challenging it was going to be for us. President Trump and the rest of the administration was clearly telling the American people this wasn't going to be a problem. It was something that was going to go away. It's not going to affect the United States. But at the same time, it came out this week that um, the president and Larry Kudlow were letting big investors know that this was a time to sell, <laughs> uh, sell in the stock market and sell short. Patrick, what did you think of that? Not surprised. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there, we've had a, a lot of... Uh, Information about insider dealing there uh, coming out mo very recently about what's going on inside, you know, the Trump empire, as it were, the Trump businesses. And so that's just one more piece of it. I mean, what, what am I going to say about it? I mean, it's just not surprising. It's not surprising, but it was it was quite shocking to go along with. Uh, also coming out in the last couple of days. And it is interesting that the New York Times seems to be breaking these stories sort of one by one. Uh, in the lead up to uh, to the election, uh, there, there came out that Giuliani, uh, Mayor Giuliani, uh, an advisor to the president, is now being seen as an asset or being being controlled or led by a Russian asset in the Ukraine to feed misinformation to President Trump. Again, not surprising, but but what did you think of that? Yeah, again, we've been hearing this. Before what what the time story reveals is that yes the the Justice Department was actually looking into that and actually advising the White House that the Russians were trying to get to Giuliani in that way. Uh, so we we just now have confirmation of things that we already believe to be true, which is kind of interesting because it comes on the heels of that New York Post story, right? 
right? Which is like the New York, you were just talking about how the New York Times is, you know, kind of dripping out the, this, these pieces of information now in October. So the New York Post had a counter program with that bizarre tale about the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, Very which, bizarre tale. <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre because I'm looking at it and you got to remember, okay, so if you haven't followed the story here, the idea was that Hunter Biden dropped off a laptop to be repaired in Delaware. And in there, there were emails on the hard drive and he never picked it up. So the owner of that shop, the repair shop, um, turned it over to uh, federal officials, uh, and but also Giuliani's lawyer. And so there That's was an something. email in there and it was supposedly incriminating of uh, Vice President Biden, yada, yada, yada. There were photographs in the New York Times story, uh, excuse me, the New York Post story of the receipt for the uh, estimate for the repair and the emails themselves. And it just reminded me, I put this up on Twitter four years ago, uh, somebody put out a, a, an expense report of the Clinton Foundation and all the people, all the organizations it was playing, paying off, including Monmouth University. And the reason, and they made it look real by creating a, a, um, a sheet with uh, the Clinton Foundation logo on it and then putting all these expenses on it, then printing it up and taking a photograph of it and then posting that on social media. So people were believing and said, oh, it's a piece of, it's a photograph of an actual piece of paper. Therefore, it must be real. When, of course, it's so easy for somebody to type something up. Now, as soon as I saw that, you know, I'm skeptical because of a number of things. Uh, so Joe Biden, uh, excuse me, Hunter Biden apparently brought in three Mac Pros to be uh, repaired. But at the same time. What, right. At the same time. And he was probably in L.A. at the time that he did this in Delaware. So who knows how that happened. But. Also, what was turned over supposedly on the subpoena to the feds was one Mac Pro and an external hard drive, which was not on the repair sheet. So what? So things weren't adding up immediately for anybody who's been through this together. And what was interesting, I found, was that, and of course, this came from Giuliani, and now we have the story about Giuliani and uh, actually being under investigation for being a tool of uh, Russia. And then what was interesting about this, so Twitter and Facebook just blocks anybody putting up a link to this story on the New York Post. Which was what is interesting to me about that, because what ends up happening there is it gives some people on the right kind of cover to support Trump again, because they say, well, they're against him. And then this is more further clear, you know, evidence that Twitter, Facebook, the whole deep state is against President Trump and everything that he was saying is true, which is problematic from my perspective, mm -hmm. because it does change the narrative in that moment. And uh, and yeah, it's like the Steve Scully thing that you mentioned last week. So Steve Scully finally admitted that, yes, he sent that tweet about to Scaramucci accidentally and it was him and he wasn't hacked. So now he's lying. He's caught yep. lying about this. So C-SPAN uh, suspended him. But he was the one Steve Scully was supposed to moderate Thursday night's debate. And, and which is thankfully, it yeah. <laughs> thankfully yeah. now, I mean, cause but, that would have been a huge story. If but this, Scully... feed, this feeds into exactly what you were saying about mm -hmm. Trump has a, a leg to stand on when he says the media is against him. Yeah. yeah. And so now there's a moment, there was a moment last night and we're going to go deeper into uh, the town halls, but there was a moment where uh, QAnon was brought up by Savannah Guthrie and asked the president if he uh, would denounce them 
right? The way that he denounced white supremacy for a moment last night, whether he would do the same thing. And what I found interesting about that and why I think it's important to the republic, President Trump is very adept at answering questions and then pivoting fast, right? So what he said was the same story he said about the Proud Boys in the debate two weeks ago was he said, I don't know anything about QAnon. And then Guthrie comes back and says, well, I just told you who they were. And you, of course, you know about QAnon. He said, no, I don't know anything about QAnon, but let's talk about Antifa. And then Guthrie says, no, let's not talk about Antifa. Let's stay on the question of QAnon. And then this is what he did. He said, what I know is that they're against pedophilia. And that's something I can get behind. So he was able to not sort of break trust with the QAnon people by denouncing them and sort of skirt around the issue. I think it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, do you have thoughts about that? Yes, because that's exactly why we're doing this show and why we have talked about all along. What QAnon is doing is much more dangerous to the state of the republic than people fighting over, uh, for example, the Supreme Court nomination right now. Uh, because they are undermining our basic trust in the fabric of what makes the republic work, the yeah. mechanics of the republic. I mean, that, that's happening in the Supreme Court nomination too. Uh, but but what QAnon is doing is, is basically creating this alternative reality that's being supported uh, by the president uh, with, as I think you say, a wink and a nod there. Yep. And that is is significantly more dangerous that people just believe this stuff um, that's not anywhere near the truth um, as a way to tear down your political enemies and in ways that ends up being dangerous because it foments violence. So, you know, we didn't talk about this last week and we didn't check in on the patient because I think we were both sort of just like, whoa, where? Look at us. We're doing it. We're doing our show again. Um, and I think the vote is going to tell everything and the Americans have a chance to save the country. But let me ask you this about the country and about the republic. How is the republic doing if it were a patient? For a long time, you and I called it on life support. I think there were moments where you said the patient has expired. Where do you think the patient is right now? I mean, still in the ICU, still on a ventilator. Um, but there are signs that it could turn the corner. But even after November 3rd, uh, you know, with the vote, we're still not anywhere near out of the woods. You know, November 3rd might take the, the patient off the ventilator, but we still have quite a ways to go. I mean, so we haven't even talked about, uh, you know, the Supreme Court uh, nomination. No, I was thinking about right now. And, <laughs> and, and I, in a, in a way, how, how we talked to, you know, go back and listen to us talking about the Kavanaugh hearings. And it's basically, you know, we're going to go through the same thing, except it's quite different. In the sense that now this is opening the door. How do Democrats, if Democrats get in control, how do they respond? Now, mm -hmm. Joe Biden has been dancing around the question of would he pack the court? But you got to remember, packing the court, i.e. adding additional seats to the Supreme Court, is as legal, is absolutely as constitutional as what's going on right now in pushing this uh nomination through at the very end, uh, right before the election. Would you argue it is equally as unethical? I would say unethical is not the right word is, is it's breaking of norms. Yes. That's what I'm saying. It is. So I think break, it's more you break this, norms, you break this norm and then you challenge the Democrats to what do you, how are you going to respond to this? 
Right. And, and, and Biden went into that last night because Stephanopoulos really pushed him on this. Right. We're going to get into that in a minute, too, with 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 the hot the hot takes. But what he said was, I'm not I, we have to see how this all plays out before I have an answer to that question. I find it troubling. The idea that I mean, do I find it troubling that Mayor Garland did not get his opportunity? Yes. Do I find it troubling that be, uh, a Supreme Court justice is being pushed through? days before that while the election is going on absolutely yes all of those things are true i also find it troubling the idea that we may have 15 people on the supreme court because then what do we add another 20 when the when the republicans take back control so there's a lot of it it, it is that is where the fabric gets torn and why it's appropriate that we're talking about the state of the republic this week because i think it's going to be really challenging and i think that it's a it is a minefield for joe biden to deal with because yes it really is. It's a. Ch- it is as challenging as it as it's looking <laughs> every week when he's being asked about it. At least right, I thought he handled himself decently well last night about it. I think I think he did too, and I think that's. I th- I think he's honest about it. He doesn't want to do this, but right. are you are you do we end up in a situation where you say the norms the fabric has been ripped so much that we can't stitch it back together the way it was, so we've got to totally rip it apart and remake it from scratch. That's, that may be that may be what we're dealing with. All right, let's let's move on to our hot take segment where we're going to take ninety seconds to discover to discuss rather some other topics in the news. And when you hear this sound, it's time to move on to the next one. Patrick, you're sending the first one to me. Yes. So, uh, what did you think about uh, Biden's town hall? Well, first thing I thought was that uh, I thought he handled himself remarkably well for the first hour. <laughs> that first hour where there was a split screen, right, where some people were watching Trump, some people were watching Biden. I watched Trump first because that's just what was on my screen. Then I put my uh, younger son to sleep and then finished off Trump and then went to Biden. The 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 contrast between the two is uh, remarkable. Uh, Joe Biden, I thought, handled himself with great elegance and grace. Goes on a bit long at times, no doubt about it. But the best moment he had was at the end of the question, he would look at the person with great humility and say, I hope I answered your question. Did I answer your question? Uh, and I thought that that was very powerful. I did think that he ran out of steam. I think it's a long time out there and over the course of 90 minutes. But then for him to stand up at the end and speak to the other people who he had not answered yet, I thought was a great look. What did you think? Yeah, yeah. He, st- he stayed on for 30 minutes or uh, 40 minutes. 45 later, minutes. Air, air, yeah, something afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think it worked for him because he's always good when he's he's directly talking to people. The, 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 the empathy that he is able to convey and it comes across on the screen, is really key to where we are right now. Because if anybody's up for grabs in terms of voters, it's not coming down to where you stand on the issues. And it's great that he can talk about issues, but it really is, am I comfortable with this person? And when you see Joe Biden on the screen, you you feel comfortable with him as a person, unless you disagree with him vehemently about his policy issues. But that's not the voter who's up for grabs right now. It's a voter who doesn't have a a core belief in issues in one way or the other. And you so, said, you said, you've, you've, you've always said that in debates, the partisans are the ones who are watching it from beginning to end. Yep. And it's the, it's, it's how it's spun. How did it spin today? Well, the well we, we got our time up, so we, we got to move oh. on to the next one, right? Sorry, so we'll talk hear. about, let's talk about spin with the Trump town hall too. The Trump town hall was a remarkable experience. The first 20 minutes, Savannah Guthrie was, I thought, uh, most successful of any of the moderators or interviewers that have dealt with President Trump before, though, did open herself up to looking like a partisan because she was being so hard on President Trump. But President Trump is hard to interview. And what she didn't do is she did not blink. We talked about the QAnon moment. There was also the white supremacy moment. 
again. Um, she, she, but here's what also I saw. President Trump is amazingly successful in when he's on his game in being charming enough to keep an audience's energy and attention. And that's what I saw. Also, there was an African-American woman behind Trump who was very powerfully pl- placed by the Trump campaign has to be because she was, was nodding, nodding her, her head. head. Yep. She was nodding her head and shaking her head. And it was, uh, you know, it was giving him approval. You know, you wonder what would have happened. What did you think? Yeah, I'm, I think so. I, I saw pretty much the same thing that you saw, which was, uh, you know, both candidates were in a sense playing to their strengths. Uh, but I think that Biden's strength, is one that will play well with these voters who are still kind of fuzzy and up for grabs right now, whereas Trump's will only play well with those who are already pretty much in his camp. Really? I, uh, I, I actually I saw it slightly differently. I, I, I thought Biden was strong, but I also thought Trump was strong last night. I think if you take out those really tough moments for Trump early in the early um, that I thought that he played, he did himself as okay. best as he could do himself. Okay, so now let's move on to this. Mercedes Schlapp, um, who is the wife of Matt Schlapp, uh, compared Joe Biden to Mr. Rogers. I saw earlier today, and you and I agree, that Mr. Trump, President Trump, could be compared to Biff Tannen from the Back to the Future movies. And in Back to the Future 2, uh, Biff Tannen, I believe, becomes the president. But you just watched the movies. What do you think of this comparison? Yeah, of Mr. Well, Rogers actually, did you, did you know that? You didn't know this. Bill Gale, who was the writer of uh, Back to the Future 2, said that Biff Tannen was actually, uh, Biff Tannen as the adult, was actually based on uh, Donald Trump. Yes, yes. yes. No, no, no. Yes, that was, was clear. That was so, clear back in yes, 1980. You know what's weird is that uh, for no reason whatsoever, I watched the I watched the, the Back to the Future trilogy over the past month. Uh, so that's interesting. The Mr. Rogers things really is important uh, to me because, you know, that the candidates have been showing up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Both candidates have been showing up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. That's where Mr. Rogers is from. Um, and I've been out to Latrobe and I've been to Mr. Rogers um, uh, 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 archives there. Yeah, I mean, you that's a great comparison. And people like there are people out there who like Biff Tannen. No, and there are not. people like that. That's not right. No, they there don't. are. Well, they don't like Biff Tannen. I mean, they like Donald Trump, no question. But Biff Tannen is only a villain. There's nothing positive about him at all, is there? I don't. And there see. are people who like Biff Tannen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There okay. are. I think I think I heard the the drum there. Um, Okay, okay, so now I want to move on to the Iowa and Maine Senate debates and the money that's going on there between Ernst and Greenfield and Collins and Gideon. Do you have any thoughts on what happened last night in the Ernst Greenfield debate? I did actually see part of the Ernst Greenfield debate. And this is interesting because I am polling Iowa right now over this weekend. And one of the questions I ask in that poll about both Ernst and Greenfield is, are they in touch with your daily concerns? Do they understand what you're going through? And one of the questions last night in the, in the debate was, was to Greenfield, how much? what's the break-even price for a bushel of corn? And yep. she, she named it right off the top of her head. And then to Ernst, what's the, the break-even price for a bushel of so- soybeans? And then she went, huh? Got it wrong by Where? twice. But, and then she got the number half when she took a guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that plays in Iowa. That's really important to play. And that was that you would need Gideon to have made that mistake. 
I mean, not Giddy. I'm sorry, Greenfield. See, there's my mistake. You would have needed Greenfield to make that mistake with the way the polls are looking in Iowa. I don't know what you've done with polling, but I thought that was a, 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 a ridiculous situation. I also thought that the moderators put a little thumb on the scale, too. There was a little bit of a nah, nah, nah at, at Joni Ernst, which, you know, you got to be mindful of. I don't, I'm not a fan of that. And Collins Gideon. Well, well, Joni Ernst made it made it worse on herself with that. But uh, yeah, but, yeah, and, but you're if, if you're in Iowa and you're doing a debate in Iowa, you got to expect that kind of question. Uh, but the Collins Gideon, the money situation is such that, I mean, Gideon is loaded and Collins ain't got as much. Any thoughts on that quickly before we get yeah, called? Get, get, well, right now we call it the uh, the Beto uh, the Beto challenge or the Beto mark, whatever Gideon's passed the Beto mark. I mean, in terms of the number amount of dollars that he's raised. Right. So, um, yeah, that's a big deal. I think Collins is, is in, in huge trouble. trouble out there. Yep. All right. Okay. So last one here up, this is where you get to talk about two things that are really near and dear to your heart. Um, you know, baseball <laughs> and, uh, the Senator from Nebraska, Ben Sass. Okay. Uh, Justin, hold off on the drum. Okay. This week, Ben Sass was on Fox News on Sunday with Chris Wallace, and he talked about Biden. And he said that Biden was grotesque in not speaking about how he feels about the court. Okay, I just want to put that out there. He led with that. He then, during uh, the during the Supreme Court nomination this week, took a couple of minutes to kind of rib his buddies, John Cornyn. Uh, and Ted Cruz, um, who are senators from Texas, sort of ribbing the Astros and talking about them being cheaters and how awful it is that they were cheaters. And I just took a step back and I said, the, the, the gall, the unforgivable gall on this man to call out cheating in baseball and to make fun of them and yet to turn his head at every turn to make sure that he was the nominee. During the impeachment, I said over and over again, Mitt Romney is Batman and Ben Sass is Robin. And Ben Sass will stand up for the Republic. I was wrong. He did not. You know when he stood up for the Republic? When he is running away with his Senate race in Nebraska about eight days ago on a call that he knew would get public. And he came out and he said, essentially, that everything that Trump is doing is wrong. That he's cozying up to dictators. He's uh, appealing to white nationalists. He didn't handle the COVID-19 situation. All of these things. Now is when he says it. Not, not when do we hear the evidence. No. Silence. Quiet. Nothing. Ben Sass is the worst of us. Why? Because he's the best of us. And then turns his back on the republic. Ben Sass is going to be running for president in 2024. Count on it. Ben Sass is going to be a very appealing candidate. Count on it. Make sure that we never forget that when it was time for him to stand up for the Republic of the United States, what did he do? He chose his own skin. And he knows better. He knew better. He knows better. And now it is politically expedient for him to come out against the president. Ben Sass is the worst of us because he is the best of us. Shame on him. All right. I'm not even going to weigh in here. Um, when you're on Ben Sass, uh, the, the floor is all yours. I'm sorry. Okay. And I, I, look, nobody loves a rant. And I had a moment where I looked and I was like, oh, I'm so mad at this guy. Why? Because I like him. Because he should be one of the next generation of founding mothers and founding fathers. And as far as I'm concerned, what he did in January 
not standing up for all of us and only for himself is unforgivable. And I will never, ever, ever let anyone forget about it. Sorry. Okay. So let's move on to our final segment, Guardian of the Week. And, uh, well, actually, one suggestion that came over Twitter is that uh, Justin, Justin Mason, our producer, should be the Guardian of the Week for bringing the <laughs> right. show back. <laughs> so what do you Justin. think about this? So, so what did you think about that? Uh, I mean, I, I'm flattered that I, I would be considered uh, a guardian. Uh, I it, one of the, one of the few um, scary parts about doing this podcast with you guys or helping you out with doing the podcast is I'm actually a registered Republican. So, and I tend to get a lot of heat on Twitter from people that don't think I stand up for conservative or Republican values, but I don't think that there's anything. I, I don't think there is anything more important than standing up for the Republic. And that's why I love this podcast. And that's why I uh, agreed to do it when uh, Ian came to me. Well, we're lucky to have you. And, uh, you know, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. Now, you were before the show. You were going to throw out an idea of the Guardian of the Week. I wonder if you're still going to do it after hearing that last rant. I mean, I think that there is a discussion for Ben Sass as the Guardian of the Week. And while I understand where you're coming from, and uh, I, I don't think you're wrong, I think the time for Ben Sass to stand up was during the impeachment uh, and say what President Trump has done violates the Constitution, violates his oath of office, uh, and he should be held accountable. And I also understand why he didn't. You can't fix something that's broken from the outside. You have to be inside. And so, yes, his uh, career to him was more important than his voice in that moment. But I also don't think we should discount what he said on that call to 17,000 Nebraskans, uh, which, like you said, he knew would get out there. Mm -hmm. uh, because there have been plenty of Republicans that have stood up and said the things that many of us in the Republican Party and many of us uh, not in the Republican Party have felt in terms of uh, our disdain for the direction of this country under Donald Trump. However, no one in office has done it. Okay, so let's thank you, thank you, Justin. And now, Patrick, let's discuss it for a moment. Uh, what do you think about the possibility? Now, you, I know you were going to leave the floor to me, but now, Justin, I think just came in with a nice piece of ginger to uh, yeah. clear the palate. So, do you have any thoughts on Ben Sass possibly? And I understand that point of view. And I, I obviously yeah. am, am very, you know, I got a lot of emotions about this man that I like very much. You know, you don't, you don't get angry at people who you don't like or you don't care for. Um, what are your thoughts about the possibility of Ben Sass being our guardian of the week? Yeah. Um, again, I, I disagree with that because you really have to risk yourself to be guardian of the week. You have to put your political future at risk to be guardian of the week. And, and he didn't do that. And for the very reasons that you, you discussed what I'd like, and this is what, you know, where, where Justin is coming in here is we need to be able to get back to the to the days, and they didn't always exist, but the days where you could have honest, heated arguments over the direction of the country based on policy. 
you know, what should the size of the uh, of the safety net be mm-hmm. for for Americans? What you know, what the how much where what's the cap on taxes? What where, where's the where's the balance between taxes and services? What will will spur the economy? Give people the freedom to do what they need to do to make their lives better. Those are all honest questions, and and and, and including you know who do we put on the Supreme Court? Well, you know, what should the courts be doing? What, what should they be focusing focusing on? What issues? They're all honest questions. But when you've broken the norms of behavior in order to do that, so that people fundamentally distrust government in a way that is damage can undermine government and lead to chaos rather than just a healthy cynicism about government. And you say, well, on, I stand on one side of saying, yes, we, we need to stop that and get back to the rules. But on the other hand, because if this was a normal situation, I would move forward with this, whether it's the nomination or whatever. Therefore, I'm going to move forward with it again as if the other part doesn't matter at this particular point in time. Then I think you've undermined your position because to me, the other part, the the fundamental position uh, and health of the republic at this particular stage of the game is much more important than where you stand on the issues in the short term. And this Joe is why if, last you're, if, you're, if you're if you're Larry Hogan, quite frankly, yeah. and it doesn't matter that he's in Maryland, but if you're Larry Hogan, in this election you vote for Joe Biden. The next election you can sit it out or abstain or or third party or whatever it is, but this election is different. Because it's an election that we have to go in a different direction for in order to save the republic, not because of the policy issues. You can fight the policy issues all you want, but you can't say I'm going to stick with my policy issues and therefore I, I will let the rules f- slide this time around um, because of that, because then you'll never get the rules back. You have Joe to be Biden. willing to lose. You have to be willing to lose an argument by the rules or else the rules don't matter anymore. So, sorry to interrupt you too many times. Uh, last night, Joe Biden said something he said before. Um, the way towards bipartisanship, which really needs to be our goal, the way, which is why Ben Sass is so valuable. Maybe I'll forgive him one day. Maybe I will. Because one thing Biden says is in politics, don't hold grudges. But what he said was you can never question another person's motives because you can't recover that, but you can question their judgment. The only argument I have and the reason why, because I do, uh, the, the hardest part about it was if if Ben Sass really believed during the impeachment that it was not an impeachable offense. OK, OK. But what is unex, unexplicable and not explainable, I don't think he'll be able to explain other than to apologize, which is really his path at a certain point when he's running for president and people are going to like him a lot. Is not listening to the interviews not listening to um, the not interviews isn't the word, what are the, the, uh, the evidence, the choice not to listen to the evidence in that spot. That's the thing he's going to need to apologize for. I know he wants his judges. I, I understand. That's why he's in the game. He has firm beliefs. Um, he doesn't win my vote for guardian of the week. I, I appreciate Justin's point of view. Uh, and, and he, he's brave. He's just late and he's not Robin. I wanted him to be Robin so bad. Mitt Romney, Batman, Ben Sass, Robin. I was calling it in, wasn't I November? I was yes, saying in October, November, December. I was like, there's one guy. I know Romney's going to step up or I believe Romney's going to step up. And you said, no, he won't. And I said, yes, he will. He's Batman. And then I said, and the other one who's going to stand up is Ben Sass. And you went, no, he won't. And I said, yes, he will. And I was wrong. I was wrong. All right. Right. 
Okay, right. so that, that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. So if you have any comments or thoughts for the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes on your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends and family so others can find us because the more people who are listening, the more often we're going to do this. And if you want to catch up on some of our past episodes, you can check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode soon. See you. And Justin, thank you. Thank you, Justin. <laughs>